2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. to 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's go before the Lord and pray, beloved. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and I pray that you would come now and help us to understand the gospel dynamics that are in play between the subjects of suffering and sharing. Lord, there's a certain way that we really need to hear this from you. And so I pray, Father, that even as you have labored to make these things clear in my mind over the last couple of days, that uh, you would help me now to make it clear to others. And for how you will minister to us, how you will minister through us because of What you have to say to us tonight, Lord, we give you our thanks and praise in the mighty and the merciful, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When we suffer, and especially when we intensely suffer, I think our tendency is to turn inward a bit and to focus on ourselves. And to some extent, this is actually a helpful God-given instinct. There is an extent to which the feeling of pain and the response to pain is a good thing for us. Pain is kind of like an alarm system, is it not? That lets us know that something's wrong. And the intensity of the pain lets us know how serious the wrong thing is, right? So if you feel a little bit of a prick on your arm, you might at least look at it and see what's going on. This is a sort of a turn inward, but it's a good thing. You need to see what's going on. But if you feel a very severe pain, let's say in your sight or something, you're really going to have to give a lot of your attention there 
and you ought to give a lot of your attention there. Something serious might be wrong. So this instinct we have to turn inward when we suffer is not necessarily bad. If we don't experience pain, we won't know something's wrong, and if we don't attend to what's wrong, then that thing's going to get out of hand and we're going to suffer the consequences and the people around us are also going to suffer the consequences of that. So again, this tendency to turn inward to some extent when we're suffering is actually, I think in part at least, a God-given instinct. However, because of our sinful nature, I think our, 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 our greater tendency is to turn pretty quickly from rightful self-care into an idolatrous self-centeredness. And this is a dangerous turn. It's, I think, a, a soul-suffocating, perhaps even a, a deadly turn for us. And the Lord loves us just too much to let us fall into this kind of a trap. And I think for those of us who love the Lord, we just don't want to allow ourselves to fall into this kind of a trap. And so we need to war against this. And we need to take heart that the Lord himself is warring against this in our lives. One of the ways that the Lord wars against the tendency toward self-obsession in us is that in the midst of our pain, he empowers us to actually minister to others. By his grace, he meets our needs, and then by his power, he empowers us to meet the needs of others, even when we shouldn't be able to do that. And I say that very deliberately. This is not something that we do for him. It's not a psychological trick to get out of ourselves and into others. It's something that God is doing in us. God works in us to meet our needs. God empowers us to meet the needs of others. And in this way, he frees us from the trap of self-obsession. That's what the message is about tonight. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about what it means to suffer by faith. And what I mean by that is what it means to cling to Christ in the midst of the fires of life, to truly look to him and learn from him and walk with him and serve him all the days of our lives. So far, we've talked about establishing the pillar of praise and thanksgiving in our lives. We've talked about confessing our sin to God as sin and confessing to him the part that we have played in the confusion of our present suffering. We've talked about receiving the grace of God in Christ and letting him wash away not only our, 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 our sin, but also the shame that we feel in response to our sin. We've talked about submitting ourselves to the Lord and walking in the ways of his word, walking in his light rather than walking in our flesh. We've talked about um, sharing our burden with other believers so that as we walk through the fires of suffering, we're not walking alone. And then tonight, finally, oh, we also talked about lamenting and calling out to God with the full range of the emotions that are in our hearts. And then finally tonight, I want to talk again about suffering and serving. I want to talk about the dynamic of how God frees us from the trap of self-obsession we're in the, when we're in the midst of the fire, and it's extremely tempting to become self-obsessed. So I want to first begin by looking with you at 2 Corinthians 1. Then I want to talk with you for a few minutes about a pastor from the 1800s named Robert Murray McShane, and then I want to bear a little testimony from Kim and myself. So let's start with 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, as I said a couple weeks ago, was a man of almost constant sorrows, who lived uh, uh, through a lot of things and was well acquainted with grief. His main calling in life was to preach the gospel to the nations of the world, and that calling was very noble. But that calling also caused him to suffer, and sometimes suffer pretty intensely, just about every single day of his life. Paul's life was a life of suffering. You could say that Paul was a successful minister, but he sure wouldn't be successful in the way that most Americans think about success. Because through his success, 
really for him all that meant was that he was obeying the will of God and along the way he suffered quite a bit. Paul suffered because of the many personal sacrifices he had to make along the way for the sake of the ministry. Paul suffered because of the many personal betrayals that he experienced at the hands of those who claimed to know God and to be Paul's friend, but who forsook him when the ministry got hard or when the ministry literally got potentially deadly. He suffered because of the opposition of those who did not know Christ, did not claim to know Christ, who opposed the gospel and who sought to punish Paul or imprison Paul or even at times to kill Paul. Indeed, Paul suffered so much that even on the very day of his conversion, the very day he got saved, the Lord told him this through the prophet Ananias. The Lord said to the prophet Ananias, go tell Paul how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Can you imagine having to bear that kind of testimony? That from the day I got saved, the Lord sent me a signal that I would be suffering much for the sake of his name. That was a privilege to suffer for Christ, but it was a reality that Paul had to endure. And trust me, our brother, if he was here tonight, would testify to you that many times he would have struggled with the, uh, with the temptation to become self-obsessed, to become self-absorbed. But the Lord helped him. In the midst of his trials, in the midst of his tribulations, all of them, God met Paul and comforted him and taught him and empowered him to do things that were quite literally beyond his capacity to do. So when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.3 that God is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, he's not just making a theoretical statement about God. He's actually bearing testimony to what he has come to know about God through the word, but then also through many experiences. Paul read the word of God regularly. He knew it well. He knew the many texts that talk about the mercy of God, the mighty mercy of God. So many Psalms talk about this. Paul knew those things well. But it was in the fires of suffering that Paul received the mercies of God most. And this attribute of God became very real to him. It became living to him. It became life-giving to him. Paul knew the word of God well. He read texts like Isaiah 40 where the Bible talks about the comforting presence of God and the comforting power of God, the comforting ministry of God in the lives of his people. Paul knew this to be true. He believed it to be true. But where he really learned about the comfort of God was in the depths of the fires of suffering, beloved. It was there that God met him and comforted him and revealed his glory to Paul. Paul is testifying in 2 Corinthians 1.3 about the glory of God's character revealed to him and not just theory that had been passed on to him. Paul found God to be a merciful God of comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions. And I love that word all. I'm so glad he used the word all. That means all of our afflictions. No matter how big they are, no matter how small they are, no matter how painful they are or how relatively unpainful they are, no matter how long they last or how short they are. In every single affliction, every day of our lives, there our Father is, our Heavenly Father is, through Jesus Christ, extending his mercy to us, extending his comfort to us. This is who our Father is. We need to receive this in our, in our minds. We need to believe this in our minds. But trust me, beloved, where you're really going to learn this truth about God is in the fires of suffering. As he meets you there, ministers his mercy to you, ministers his comfort to you. Paul found these things to be true. And on top of all of this, Paul also found that as God comforts us and deeply ministers to our needs, he also empowers us to meet the needs of other people when we 
from a natural point of view, should not be able to do so. When we come completely to the end of ourselves and we literally have nothing left to give, God is able to empower us to give because we're ministering by his power. This Paul learned in the fires of suffering. So let me read now for you again verses 3 through 5. Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of mercies. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that, there's a purpose statement there, God comes to us. He meets us in the middle of the fire. He ministers mercy to us. He ministers comfort to us. And he does this so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction whatsoever, no matter how big, how small, how painful, how relatively unpainful, how short, how long. We become uh, equipped to minister to other people by the ministry of God. He ministers with the comfort with which He teaches us to minister with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. Beloved, in this life, every single person will suffer. And yet for those who know Jesus Christ, our suffering is not in vain. Our suffering has many purposes. God is at work even in the midst of the fire. No matter how intense the fire no matter how serious the fire, no matter how long-lasting the fire. Let me just give you a few examples of what God does. In our suffering, we come to know who God is in more depth of reality as he actually ministers to our needs. As I just said about Paul, so it happens to us. We come to move from a theoretical knowledge about God into an actual experiential relational knowledge of God. God for us doesn't just become a God who comforts in a broad way, but he becomes the God who is our comfort. He is not just God who ministers in a broad way, he's the God who ministers to our heart. It becomes very real to us. His presence becomes very precious to us. In our suffering, we learn how to depend upon God and lean all of our weight upon him in every season of life. We know that we ought to do this, but the plain fact of the matter is sometimes we just don't know how to do this. But when you're in the midst of hot fires and you really have no other choice, if you're to continue believing in God, God is there to teach you how to lean on him, how to draw from him, how to receive ministry from him, how to let his ministry flow through you to other people. In our suffering, we are shaped all the more into the image of him who saved us so that we actually become like him. We think like him. We feel like him. We speak like him. We act like him. We become like the God who is so merciful to us. This is such a grace in the midst of pain. In our suffering, we gain fresh passion and power to minister to others by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by the power of our flesh. As I said to you a few weeks ago, hopefully we're always ministering to others out of the power of the Spirit and not out of the power of self. But sometimes when God just brings you completely to the end of yourself, you don't even have a choice to be tempted to minister from your flesh because you have nothing to give. And in those moments when God grants you his power to minister his word, to minister his mercy, to minister his comfort, then you know what it feels like. You know how to go about ministering uh, on on the basis of his strength and not on the basis of your strength. Oh, beloved, our suffering in Christ is never in vain. He is always up to so many things. He is working in us. He is working through us. He is shaping us into his very image. When we suffer, and especially when we intensely suffer, we tend to move pretty quickly 
from appropriate self-care to inappropriate self-centeredness, into idolatrous self-obsession. This is a very serious problem, but what I want us to see tonight is that the solution to this problem is not to turn our attention from ourselves directly toward others and to serve their needs. That's actually a self-help type of solution. I think what self-help gurus would say is if you want to get out of yourself and get over yourself, look to the needs of others and spend at least part of your day every day ministering to the needs of others. And while there is some logic to that point of view, at the end of the day, it's a bankrupt point of view and it won't work. At the end of the day, you won't still have much to give to other people. And eventually, since you don't really have a fuel source, you're going to completely run out of gas and you're going to find out that helping other people could never fill up the hole in your soul anyways. It just will not work. The solution to self-obsession is not to focus on other people. The solution, biblically speaking, to self-obsession is to look to the Lord. It's to lean on the Lord. It's to confess our sins to the Lord. It's to listen to the Lord. It's to open up his word. It's to receive from his hand. It's to receive from his spirit. It's to receive his mercy It's to receive his healing touch. It's to receive his enabling power. And as we receive from the Lord, then we're all filled up with what we need to minister to other people. The solution to the temptation of self-obsession is to direct the attention that way. And then God ministers to us, and through us, he ministers to others. There's a flow. And of course, turning that corner to meeting the needs of other people is actually very important. I think it matters That at some point we get out of our chair or get off the couch or get off our pity potty or whatever we're struggling with and actually minister to the needs of others. But the way we do that is so crucially important. What the Lord, I think, would teach us tonight, beloved, is that the solution to the temptation of self-absorption when we're suffering is not to look directly to others, but first to look to God, to draw upon God, and then to wait on Him until He empowers us to minister other people. As the Apostle Paul and his companions were preaching the good news of Jesus Christ in the ancient province of Asia, today that's Greece and Turkey and some of those other countries in that area, they encountered some very severe, in fact, life-threatening opposition. Paul tells the church of Corinth in chapter 1 here that at one point he and his companions were so completely overwhelmed by their suffering that they actually thought that they were going to die. And while it's possible that Paul is saying that some magistrate had pronounced the death penalty on them for preaching the gospel, I don't think that that's likely. I don't think that's what was happening here. I think if you carefully read the language that Paul uses here, what he is saying is they were so absolutely sapped of physical and emotional energy because of the the intensity and constancy of their suffering that they actually came to a place where they thought they would not be able to physically live anymore. Some people have said that Paul was suicidal here in this passage, but I I really don't think that's true at all. First of all, he's not just talking about himself, he's talking about his whole group of companions. And I just can't imagine that all of them felt suicidal together. I think what he's saying is that they were quite literally brought to the end of themselves to the point where they didn't think they were going to survive. Perhaps they were caught in a prison Perhaps they were being withheld uh, of food and water. Uh, Perhaps they were being tortured. I don't know what was actually happening. I just know that through the depth and the intensity of their suffering, they literally thought they were going to die. That's how bad the situation was. But in the midst of that fire, God met Paul. And it's just such a powerful, powerful 
thing that God did when he met him. Paul and his companions cried out to God from the depths of their despair. And when they did, they received mercy from God, they received comfort from God, and they learned an incredibly important lesson from God that Paul has now passed on not only to the Corinthian church, but to all the churches uh, of, throughout the world for the last 2,000 years. In the midst of the fire, when they thought they were going to die, they cried out to God and said, Oh, Lord, spare our lives. Oh, Lord, help us to live another day to preach the glory of Christ. And, and, and praise be to God, it was within his will to spare them. And God met them there and taught them this incredibly valuable lesson. If you look again at verse 9, Paul said, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. God was at work in the heat of their suffering, beloved. From the day of Paul's conversion, I think he knew this lesson already to be true, that people who serve the Lord should serve the Lord from his strength and not from our strength. Paul knew this. And by the time Paul experienced what he's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 1, he had been ministering the gospel throughout the world for many years. He was not a novice. In many ways, he already knew this lesson, and not just theoretically, he knew it in his heart. But then God allowed him to descend into the fires of suffering to a depth he had never known, and in that place, God taught him this lesson to a depth he had never known. That what life is about, how life in Christ actually works, is as his people call on him and draw upon him, whether they're in a season of triumph or a season of suffering, and they minister the gospel of God from the power of God. We rely upon him who raises the dead. Paul, as I said, already knew this lesson, but now God drove it more deeply into his heart, and he drove it more deeply into the hearts of his companions. And once they had sufficiently learned the lesson, you know what the Lord did? He delivered them from that deadly peril. And again, Paul's pretty vague here. He doesn't say what actually happened. He doesn't say anything about the details of their suffering. He doesn't say how they were delivered. He just said, look, we were in a very deep, dark pit. God met us there. He taught us something crucial, and then he delivered us from that pit. And then Paul said, because of that, he had the faith, not only that God had delivered him, but that God would deliver them again and would deliver them again. God was at work in the midst of the fire. God was teaching him an absolutely crucial lesson. Having received this ministry from the Lord in the depths of his despair, Paul then related this story to the Corinthian church and even now to Glory of Christ Fellowship in Elk River, not only to update his friends and call them to pray for him, but also to encourage them to rely on the power of God rather than the power of their flesh as they endured the fires of suffering in the context of their ministry. Do you see what's happening here? Paul not only received from God, but now he became an instrument of the ministry of God. Paul not only learned a, a truth from God in the depths of his heart, but now he's able to pass that on to others in a way that I'm sure really impacted them. Paul not only became a, an object of the ministry of the mercy of God, he now became a conduit through which other people were learning about the ministry of the mercy of God. And Paul went on in the rest of 2 Corinthians to say much more about these things. And we can, we can ferret out as we really think about the details of 2 Corinthians that they indeed learned to live by this lesson over time. 
they learned more and more to rely on the power of God who raises the dead. And beloved, I just want us to see Paul as an example of a man who came to the brink of death and just like all of us was tempted to focus too much on himself, to go deep into the depths of self-obsession, but the Lord loved him too much to let him go down there and so he ministered to him in the depths of the fire and he taught him to fix his gaze upon God and as Paul fixed his gaze upon God, God not only ministered to his needs but then empowered him to minister to the needs of others. This is what it looks like to suffer by faith. This is what it looks like to suffer in a way where we can still serve other people. We don't serve from our strength. We look to God and we serve from his strength. Robert Murray McShane was raised in a Christian home in the early 1800s, but even well into his teen years, by the time he was 18, almost at the end of his teen years, he still did not know the Lord and he was not walking with the Lord and he was fairly proud about that fact. He was becoming an intellectual. He prized himself on, uh, prided himself on being smart about all sorts of things and he sort of hardened his heart toward God and towards others who were following God. But when he was 18, his eldest brother fell ill and he eventually died. And Robert said that that was the first overwhelming blow against his worldliness, to use his words. There were other blows also that came against his worldliness. And one uh, incident after another, the Lord sort of stung him with one thorn after another and brought him to a place of humility brought him to a place of understanding that the things in which he was putting his hope and the things in which he was taking pride were things that were not going to last for very long. And so by the grace of God, while he was still 18, he humbled himself before God and put his faith in Jesus Christ, and he became our brother in Christ, Robert Murray McShane. This occurred in 1831. And not long after his conversion, he felt a call to the ministry, and so he went off to school he trained for theology under the godly leadership of people like Thomas Chalmers, who taught him to walk in the ways of God and who taught him about the particulars of ministry. After he graduated, four years later, he took a one-year position in a church as an associate pastor, and then in 1836, he became the preaching pastor of a church in Dundee, Scotland. He was the ripe old age of 23 years old. He was a young man indeed, but Robert was a passionate man with regard to the things of God. He was a man who pursued God by the word and prayer every day of his life. He was a man who faithfully preached the word of God from the pulpit each week, no matter how hard it was, no matter how controversial it might have been. He was a man who faithfully preached the gospel in his city and who was willing to suffer anything for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Again, he was a young man, but Robert Murray McShane was a faith-filled man. Somewhere along the way, I couldn't find out exactly when this was, but somewhere in his early 20s there, he contracted tuberculosis. And as time went on, his body both weakened physically and his heart also began to weaken emotionally. As his tuberculosis uh, progressed, he actually fell into an ongoing depression that became pretty severe. He reports that it was basically a daily fight for him to, to fight back the dark clouds of depression every single day of his life. Every single day of his life, he had to go before the Lord and struggle to see the light through the darkness. But as it was for the Apostle Paul and his companions, so it was for our brother Robert. In the midst of his disease, in the midst of his emotional despair, God met him day by day. God comforted him. God healed him. 
God taught him, and God also empowered him to continue serving others all the day of his life. God taught Robert how, on a practical daily basis, to rely on him who raises the dead and not on himself all the way unto his death. God taught him that the solution to his uh, looming self-obsession was not just to give himself toward others, but mainly to give himself toward God, who would then empower him to serve others for the glory of his name. And as for how Robert turned his eyes toward the Lord, it was very simple. It's not anything you have never heard, but I sure pray it's something you'll pay close attention to tonight. I fear that in our days of so many gadgets and so many distractions, so much constant noise, lessons like these are easily lost on us, but they're the most important of lessons. Robert Murray McShane turned his heart toward God each day by putting his eyes on the word of God each day. Simple, powerful. Robert Murray McShane turned his heart toward God each day by putting his eyes on God's word every single day. He opened his Bible early in the morning. He really believed in that. He read the word of God and he prayed to the Lord. He waited on the Lord while he was there with him and he waited until he received from the Lord whatever he had for him that day. He wasn't looking for a a particular feeling or a particular experience. He was just waiting until the Lord ministered his mercy to him on that particular day. And day by day, he says, that he received the comfort and the healing power of the Lord. As he grew in this grace, he remembered something that his mentors had taught him, and eventually he put it in his own words in a way for which he's actually become famous and that I find extremely encouraging. So let me just read some of his words to you and maybe, maybe ponder them a little bit together with you. Here's what he wrote. He said to his people and to those around him in his life, he said, learn much from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the key sentence. He said, look for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourselves, take 10 looks at Christ. I really like that sentence. Because when he says for every look at yourself, I do think he's acknowledging that to some extent we need to look at ourselves. There is an appropriate way that we self-reflect, that we pay attention to the issues in our life, for better or for worse. In itself, there's nothing wrong with considering the self, but we can so easily get obsessed. So he simply said, for everyone, look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And the way he did that was by fixing his eyes on the words of Christ. That's how he did it. It was not just a mental exercise. It was an exercise of discipline in the word of God. Then he said, Christ is altogether lovely. So live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love. And then rest in his almighty arms. Beloved, I know that sounds idealistic, but that was coming from a young man who was suffering, really suffering. That was coming from a young man in his 20s, just beginning his ministry, just wondering what his life was going to become and what kind of fruit he would be able to bear in his beloved homeland and knowing at the same time that he was probably going to die of the disease he had. It was the same disease that took my wife's grandfather, but that was many years later. In the early 1800s, there was almost no hope for somebody who had tuberculosis outside of a miracle. He knew he was going to die. And yet he feasted on Christ and he was able to say things like this. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And then rest in his almighty arms. 
just when Robert Murray McShane was under the great threat of sinking into the kind of depression that would become a lifelong self-obsession, God freed him from this trap by teaching him how to look to Christ more than himself. God freed him by teaching him to gaze upon the glory of Christ and to draw upon his Savior so that he would have everything he needed, not only to minister to his own needs, but also to minister to the needs of others. And oh, how I pray that God will free us up tonight to learn this lesson well. For every single look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ and do that by being rich in the word of God. Open the word. Call upon your heavenly Father. Wait for the Lord. Trust that Jesus will reveal his glory to you and then, yes, receive from his hands. In the latter days of his life, The Lord so profoundly drove this lesson into Robert's heart that he came to exhort others by by many writings. He actually never intended to publish his writings. After he died, one of his mentors took his writings and published them. And some 180 years later, they're still in print today. If you can find anything from Robert Murray McShane, I would encourage you to buy it and read it and savor it. He's very helpful in his writing. Let me just read two more quotes from you along these lines. He said of being in the word of God and of prioritizing that, here's what he said. He said, never let yourself see the face of a man until you have seen the face of him who is our life. One thing I like to tell myself every day is put God before your gadgets. Pick up your Bible before you touch your phone. Pick up your Bible before you touch your iPad. Put God first. Robert Murray McShane is is saying to us, discipline yourself with regard to this. If you want to learn how to look to Christ more than look to yourself, then you must become disciplined in the word. You must become rich in the word. And then here's what he said about this. It reminds me so much of the overwhelmingly emotional, passionate language that King David had in Psalm 119 about the word of God. Listen to what he said about his time in the word of God. He said, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. So dive and dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of the depths of them. And when he said to dive into them, he meant dive into Christ by diving into the word about Christ. How many millions of dazzling pearls and gems are at this moment hidden in the deep recesses of the ocean of Christ waiting for you. With words like that, he encouraged the people of his church and he's encouraging us even tonight to be a people who are rich in the word. Beloved, self-obsession is a real temptation when we're suffering. It was a temptation for our brother here. He was open about that. The people around him, after, they, after he died, they wrote about this. They were open about that. But he found his freedom from self-obsession, not by looking to others, but by looking to the Lord. And as he looked to the Lord, through his word, he received from the Lord, and he received much power to minister to other people. He was only the pastor of that church in Dundee for six and a half years. And at the age of 29, Robert Murray McShane breathed his last and went to be with the Lord at the age of 29. As I said a minute ago, he had never actually tried to publish anything that he wrote or any of his sermons. But one of his mentors found his writings upon his death and decided that they should be published. And because he did that, we have his writings to this day. And the reason I mention that is not so much to say anything about Robert himself, but to say something about the ministry of mercy in God. This young man was suffering greatly. He looked to God and he had no idea, even to the day of his death, he had no idea 
how God was going to use his ministry in Robert's life to minister to the needs of other people, including us who are here tonight. God may not use our lives in such a long and historic way, but I think this dynamic that was true for him is also true for us. The way we escape from self-obsession is by looking to God. And as we look to him, he not only heals our hearts, but he ministers through us, or he empowers us to minister to other people as well. Many years ago, one of my parents' close friends was rear-ended while he was stopped at a red light. His name was Joe Reams. And that particular day, I, I was young. I was probably 11 or 12 years old when this happened, but I, I remember it pretty well. He was hit very hard. He was injured fairly severely, nothing too bad. He wasn't paralyzed, but he was injured fairly severely, and it took him quite a while to recover from his injuries. Eventually, Joe recovered from that. He got another car. He got in that car, literally drove it off the, light, off the lot, and only a few miles later, he got rear-ended again and fairly severely again. He healed from that injury. He really didn't want to drive himself anymore. The next three times that he got in a car when someone else was driving, he was also rear-ended. Bam, bam, bam. Five times in a row. Every time he got in a car, he got rear-ended. After that fifth time, he was so paranoid about driving that he literally could not bring himself to get in a car again. He was so paralyzed with the anticipation of what might happen that he decided he just had to give up driving and find other ways to work out the affairs of his life, which he in fact did. As far as I know, to the day of his death, he never got in a, in a car again. Well, given the kind of things that Kim and I have been through over the last 10 or 11 months and how severe they have been, I would tell you that right now that's pretty much how we feel about life in general. Not just about living or driving in a car, but just how we feel about walking out of the house and living life at all. We have endured so many significant things over such a short period of time that it's hard for us not to fall into a sort of paralysis that wonders what kind of storm is going to hit our family next. It's hard for us not to live each day wondering if something else terrible or tragic is going to happen. It's hard for us to not think about if someone's going to show up at our door and knock at our door and tell us that, again, somebody uh, precious to us has died or some other sort of tragedy has happened. And because of this emotional dynamic, we have been, and to some degree we still are, I think prone to fall into the trap of idolatrous self-obsession. We are, are prone still to fall into a trap of paralyzing fear, that keeps us from seeking the Lord and from doing the things that he has called us to do day by day by day. And so the way that Kim and I have been warring against this by the grace of God is simply by exhorting one another to be found in the presence of God day by day by day by day by day. In the midst and depth of our suffering, God has been meeting us as he did for the Apostle Paul and his companions, as he did for Robert Murray McShane. So God has been teaching Kim and me to make a priority of the Word of God every day of our lives. Maybe we don't read as much as we normally would or as much as we would like to. I know I, I personally have had to cut back a little on my Bible memory stuff because my brain has had a harder time memorizing in these days. But as much as we can be in the Word, we want to be in the Word the Lord has taught us to gaze upon his glory day by day by day and to ask one another about these things. The Lord has taught us to give thanks to Christ every day and particularly for the things that are hurting us or stressing us out. The Lord has taught us to sing his praise every day, to give him thanks in song every day, to put him first every day in that particular way. 
And then at some point, just about every day, we touch bases with each other, ask how things have gone that day, and just try to encourage one another toward the Lord. In fact, today, on the way to church, we stopped by Taco Bell to grab dinner, and the line was long, and it was taking forever. And so we just took a few minutes to just pray and direct our hearts toward the Lord and just say, Lord, help us. Heal us, empower us to minister to others. The Lord will make time if you have a heart to fly to him, beloved. If you have a heart to look at him ten times for every time you want to look at yourself, he will make time, even if it's in the line at Taco Bell. And today, so far, that's what the Lord has done for us. I'm sure we'll have more time tonight, but I cannot tell you how sweet it has been for us to both be encouraging each other toward the Lord because he has taught us over many years that that's the solution to our fears. We don't want to live in paralyzing fear. We don't want to live in the, in the wonder of what in the world's coming next. We don't want to live thinking that all is doom and gloom because we know Jesus Christ. And I don't care how much we suffer. All is not doom and gloom. There's much eternal hope for us. And so as best friends in Christ, We are disciplining one another to flee to Christ day by day by day by day. And I can tell you, I can testify to you that time and time and time again, when I have felt paralyzed, God freed me. When I have felt afraid, God comforted me. When I have not known what to do, God showed me what to do in his time and in his way. God has taught us anew to rely not on ourselves, but on him who raises the dead. Kim and I have been through plenty of things in our lives, even from Kim's very young age, she began to suffer. And for me, from about the time I was 11, I began to go through many things. And we knew already, to some degree, what it meant to rely on God. But what I'm telling you is very much like the Apostle Paul. We've found ourselves in in the depth of a ditch we've never quite known before, and God has met us there. And he has taught us how to fix our eyes upon him and to draw upon him day by day by day. He has taught us how to look at him 10 times for every time we look at our own souls. And for this, we give him much praise and thanks. And through the process, he has also empowered us nearly every day to somehow minister to the needs of other people. And some days, to be honest with you, that to me has felt like a miracle. There are days, especially in the middle of the summer, where I just felt completely incapable of even dealing with the daily stuff of life, much less blessing anyone in the name of Christ. And God would give me strength and an opportunity and ministry would happen through me and I would walk away from there just saying, Lord, you're amazing. You are truly amazing. Just this last week, Kim had the opportunity to minister to a woman who used to be her boss and is now trying to hire her and be her boss again. And it became a prayer session. A job interview became a prayer session because Kim, by faith, just said, can I pray for you? What's happening with you? And this person shared her heart and Kim got to pray. We shouldn't really be in a condition to do things like that. But what I'm saying is this is not about us. This is about what God is doing in us. When you will flee to Christ and fix your eyes upon Christ and dive and dive and dive into the unfathomable riches of Christ, he gives you power to do what in your flesh you literally should not be able to do. And for this, beloved, we bear testimony to you and give all the glory to God himself. As God does this type of work in us, as he ministers his mercy to us and heals us and then empowers us to meet the needs of others, plenty is happening just right there. But one more thing that I want to bring out to us today is that even something even greater than all of that is happening in the process. Namely, God is using that whole process to shape us into his image. He's using that whole process to make us to be like him. Think about this. In verse 3, Paul says that God is the father of mercies. 
Then he ministered the mercy of, of, of himself to Paul, and he caused Paul to minister his mercy to other people. In other words, he caused Paul to actually be like him, to become like him. In verse 3, Paul says, God is the God of all comforts, and so he ministered comfort to Paul, and then he empowered Paul to minister that comfort to other people. Paul was actually becoming like God. In the midst of despair, in the midst of suffering, Paul and his companions and Robert Murray McShane and Kim and I, and I'm sure many of you, have not only been empowered by God to serve, but beloved, in the process, we've been shaped into the image of God. As I said earlier, as Christian people, we never suffer without purpose. And I think the greatest of all of the purposes is that the Lord uses the furnace of suffering to shape us into the image of his son. And for this, we ought to give great praise to his name. We ought to feel the joy of Christ in our hearts. And we ought to have fresh passion to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel in the world. The grace of God is so great, beloved. It's unfathomable. As Robert Murray McShane said, we will never, ever, ever come to the end of it. We will never come to the depths of it. And so as we come to a close now, let's just take a few minutes to give thanks to God and to pray that he will do this work in us and give us the grace to look to him. Our God and Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you so much that you are the God of mercies. This is who you are. We thank you so much that you are the God of all comforts. This is who you actually are. And we thank you that out of the depths of your character that you act in the lives of your people. We thank you that you actually comfort us in the midst of all of our afflictions. And Lord, as I said earlier, I'm particularly grateful that it doesn't matter how big or small those afflictions are. You don't need to measure them or weigh them or vet them. Where affliction is, the comfort of God is for those who look to you in faith. So thank you, Father, that that's who you are. Thank you, Father, that as you minister your mercy and comfort to us, that you also empower us to minister those very things to other people. Thank you so much that you use this process to free us from self-obsession. Thank you so much, Father, that in all of that, you are shaping us into the very image of your Son, that you're causing us to be like you in how we think and feel and speak and act. Oh, God, thank you for doing great things. Thank you that our suffering is not in vain. Father, I pray that for everyone who has heard this word tonight, that they will humble their hearts before you and seek you. I pray especially for those who are in great pain. I pray that they would learn the precious truth of this message. For every look at yourself, look ten times at Christ. Oh, God, please, by your spirit and by your mercy, minister these things to us. And for how you will work in us, for how you will work through us, we give you our thanks and praise in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.